Thank you, worship team. Please be taking your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 this morning. And we'll be looking into verse 47 for our text. As they just sang that song, Lord have mercy for what we have done. It is our practice to have a theme song for the month. And uh, the theme song for May this month is that song right there. And oftentimes we'll have our worship team or the children's choir or the teen choir sing it for us as a church family so that we can be prepared to sing that at the end of the service. And so please be asking the Lord to help us with that. What a beautiful song that points us uh, to the Lord's mercy for us as his people. Turning now to Matthew chapter 13 in verse 47. If you'll join me there in the word of God, we're reading in verse 47 down through verse 51. Matthew chapter 13 verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth. They will separate the wicked from among the just, <clears throat> excuse me and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, turning to his disciples, verse 51, said to them, Have you understood these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Well, this is the word of God. We're right here in the middle of the parables here in Matthew chapter 13. And this is the second extensive sermon that we've seen, excuse me, the third extensive sermon that we've seen Jesus give to his disciples recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what's known as the kingdom parables. Each one of these parables are pointing us to different facets of the work of the kingdom of God. And again, just a reminder that parables are designed to both reveal, but also at the same time simultaneously to conceal. Parables are given in story form, they're extended similes and metaphors, and they're simply given to lay alongside a particular truth. In fact, our theme here, as we pointed out a moment ago, is the kingdom of God. Last week we saw the, the treasure, the parable of the treasure and also the pearl of great price. The aspect of what we would call is the value of the kingdom. Without total liquidation, you cannot have full acquisition of the treasure of God. This does not mean that this is the means by which we purchase the treasure, but it's the means by how we receive the kingdom of heaven. We come to him, we come to it empty-handed. The king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left everything to come and to save his people from their sins, he calls us. He comes and makes us something by His grace, and He calls us to leave everything and to receive Him as King, as Lord, and as Savior. As every sermon has a beginning and a conclusion, what we find here in verse 47 of Matthew 13 is we're coming down to the conclusion of Jesus' successive parables. And what is the conclusion of this message? Well, what we'll find here in the text today is that it's one, the theme would be one of judgment. Judgment. A certain judgment. That's very interesting, isn't it? As we come to the theme of Jesus' message, judgment is the very antithesis of what our culture desires, what our culture celebrates. 
In fact, if there's any verse in the Bible that people are familiar with, it's simply the fact that do not judge, do not judge me. They'll understand some aspect about judge not, lest you also be judged in the same way. And they'll take that without any understanding of the passage or scripture, which we saw back in Matthew chapter 7. And they'll make that the theme of their life. No man can judge me. You can't judge me. Not even God can judge me. Or they'll say, only God can judge me. And friends, he will. That's what we're seeing here in the text. His truth guides. His, his truth shows us the sin in our life as we look into the mirror of God's word. God's truth judges us every time we come to it. But the popular culture, that the age, is simply this. Don't judge me. Let me be who I want to be. Let me have what I want to have. Don't judge me. Don't cross-grain me. Don't tell me I'm wrong, essentially. Well, if the Bible is clear about anything, it is clear that there is a certain judgment for all men. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, It is appointed unto man once to die, or to die once, but after this, the judgment. Without doing an extensive study on what the Bible has to say about judgments, we will not be doing that this morning. But for the lost, there is what's known as the, the great white throne judgment. To those who are not found safe in Christ, to those who are not saved from their sin, born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, entering into the new birth of Christ, the new life of Christ, the great white throne judgment will be the lost judgment. That will be the judgment of all of those who've rejected the gospel, who've rejected God, and this will be their, for lack of better words, their great day. For Christians, our sin was judged upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But I would just remind all of us, friends, that does not mean no accounting. Christians will have an accounting before the Lord. Our sin is judged. Wonderful. Yes, that is the glory of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. But much to whom much is given, much is required. And God's children, his servants, his stewards, his people that are covered in the blood of Christ will have a great accounting. And their works will be seen as that which is burned up. And Paul gives the metaphor, the illustration of if it remains, it will be that which is like gold. But if it is something, the ways that we've served Christ or how we've lived our life in stewardship here on earth has been something that is less than God's plan, God's ways for his glory, for and led by his spirit, it will be something that burns up like chaff or like wood or like hay and stubble. That is the believer's accounting, the believer's judgment. When we think about judgment, God is kindly and graciously in our natural world given all types of mini judgments, right? Deadlines, due dates. We just think about important dates on the calendar. Bills are due by a certain date. All of us recently, or all of us were supposed to have recently uh, completed our taxes. Some of us, by a certain date, some of us had to file a, a tax extensions or uh, extensions for more time, those types of things. But when we start thinking about deadlines and we start thinking about requirements, when we start thinking about uh, accounting, when we start thinking about coming before a judge, it makes us nervous. It causes us to get in a kerfuffle. It causes us to want to make sure we have our, our, 
our T's crossed and our I's dotted because we know there is some kind of standard. We have to have it done by a certain time. And friends, these are just normal, everyday, what I would call simply reminders or blessings that all point to something far greater than, than themselves. And that is simply the fact that we will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Matthew chapter 13, we see picking up again in the teaching ministry of Jesus in our text today, it is a warning to the lost. Or more specifically, it is a warning to the wicked, those who are lost in their trespasses and sins, who transgress the standard of God's law. It is as though Jesus is saying here in our text with all possible emphasis, friends, there is coming a judgment or there is a coming judgment and the fate of the godly and the ungodly will be determined in that day and the fate of the ungodly will be terrible in that day. May the Lord speak to us and lead us by his spirit. When we look here in this verse, verses 47 through 52, we see that it's very similar. This parable of the dragnet is very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares. Previously, when we looked at that parable of the wheat and the tares, beginning in verse 36, or actually beginning in verse 24, and then it's explained beginning in verse 36, we do see some similarities that are there. The wheat and the tares growing up together until a, a harvest. There's a gathering of both that is then followed by a separation of both. Here in our text, beginning in verse 47, we see that there is a gathering of fish that is followed by a separation of what the text describes as the good and the bad. Both parables, we see that there is the work of angels, that angels are the messengers of God. They have received a delegated authority to do gathering and separating and judgment work. We even have the repetition of two key phrases in verse 40 and also in verse 49, at the end of the age. And then in verse 42 and 50, we see the command that to throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, one thing we can say for sure is that Jesus is not silent about the coming judgment. One thing you can say is that, or excuse me, one thing you cannot say about the teaching, preaching ministry of Jesus is that this is something that is not indicative of it or characteristic of it. And yet many people choose to ignore a message like the one that we're looking at today. And you say, well, why is that? Why is it when we think about the teaching ministry of Jesus that this is not what comes to the, to the forefront? Well, there's a couple of answers to that, no doubt. And if we gave time, we could, we could come up with some solutions. One would be simply, we want to emphasize the good news of the gospel. And there's no shame in that. The gospel age, this is the age of grace. This is the age of the gospel. The gospel is what saves. The gospel is what redeems. And that is the message that we preach. But I'd also say that is not to the neglect of the message of what happens when men reject the gospel. Friends, you need to hear this message. You need to hear the word of the Lord. In fact, Jesus, as we pointed out before, gives us more teaching on hell than any of the other apostles or disciples, uh, period. We learn more about hell and judgment and the end of the age from the teaching ministry of Jesus, more of which we'll see in just a moment. Look with me back in our text in verse 47. What we find here is that there is there's a net. There is a sea. We see that there's fish, all kinds of fish, many kinds of fish. 
Our text reveals to us that there are men who do this fishing work. In fact, Leviticus gives prescriptions to the people of God. What is kosher? What fish are to be eaten and enjoyed? And what fish are to be left alone? In a sense, we could say these men in this parable know the scriptures. They know their Bible, even though this is a fictional uh, story. We understand that. But they're sorting. There are some fish to be eaten and taken to market, to be put into vessels. And there are some fish to be cast aside. They are, notice here, the, the bad fish. First of all, the net. As we walk through this text, I just want to point out some surface things before we look at the judgment that Jesus teaches upon. First of all, we notice that there is a net here in this parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind of fish. Now, I know I'm speaking to a number of people this morning who enjoy, to fi enjoy fishing. In fact, if you enjoy, would you call yourself a fisherman? Just raise your hand just for a second. I want us to see. Very good. And so you guys are interesting because you're the, you're the highlight here of what Jesus is describing and talking about. Think about it with me just for a second. Jesus grew up in a, a carpenter's home, very blue-collar home, constructing and making things with stone and wood, uh, experts believe. It was more than just wood. Some said that he was involved, the, the ministry of Joseph or his calling, his vocation was in, in construction, would not be limited to uh, wood per se. But either way, working, Jesus was used to working with his hands. We don't see any in, indication in Scripture that Jesus was an expert fisherman. Uh, we're, we're in that regard, right? We, we see his work as the son of man, but it's interesting to imagine in your mind's eye, hear a carpenter instructing commercial, industrial fishermen like Peter, Andrew, James, and John about the skill of fishing in this parable. You can imagine that when he began to invoke this parable that they started maybe having a smile on their face or listening maybe more carefully than they had in the previous parables. Here we see that a net is brought into the equation. Now, there were three major ways to fish in the Sea of Galilee, and from what I'm told to those who've gone more recently, is that you will see people fishing in these same ways in the Sea of Galilee even today. They've done it for thousands of years. First of all, there was the wet line, just to, to wet a line and to do a rod and reel to catch fish one by one, just a traditional way to go fishing. And if you were to fish this way, you would simply only be fishing out of a hobby or delight or maybe just for dinner tonight, for you, and maybe your spouse, that type of thing. But this would not be a good way uh, to do industrial fishing. If you wanted to fish more than with rod and reel, then there would be fishing with, with nets, particularly the type of nets that were called a cast net. A net that you could cast down that had weights that would be all gathered together and you would cast it out. Many of them say that it would be in a circle, the weights would take it down and you would draw it all the way down to the bottom and it would gather up a good number of fish. Maybe you could feed your family or a number of people for a party. But those are not the descriptions that, that Jesus is using here in this parable. He, he invokes here in verse 47 the dragnet, which is industrial fishing. This type of fishing was for the whole village. It was for the whole town. Men would take a dragnet between two boats, or they would take one boat and fasten the dragnet to a pole or some type of sturdy surface on the shore, and they would go out and they would, they would figure out which way the, the fish are going, or maybe not at all. They're just going to see what they could do. And they would take that boat out in a half semicircle, then they would bring it all the way back in. The weights would take the net all the way down to the bottom, and just indiscriminately, it's just pulling in loads and schools of fish. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, I believe it's verse 18, we, we see for the first time uh, Peter, James, and John, they're there fishing, casting their nets into the sea when Jesus calls them to leave their nets, to leave their fishing, and to come be fishers, not of fish, but to become fishers of men. The net. Now, there's all types of descriptions into what all these things mean, and I, I, we can get off trail in a New York minute when we begin to dissect all the aspects of it. But I would, for my purposes this morning, simply just say this. The emphasis here is the gospel of the kingdom. And in one sense, I think we would be right to understand this as understanding as the net goes forth into the sea, this is the gospel going forth, being presented to men, lost men, men responding to the gospel. Then that leads people to say, well, what does the sea mean here? Well, I don't know for sure. I'm going to be honest with you. I just know this. It represents the field. It represents the world. Much like the field represents the world, the sea here represents the world and, and what we can understand that this parable means. And it's gathering out God's people from the world. In fact, when you, you look at the usage of river, the river of life, Oftentimes, the river in Scripture is a metaphor for life, the gospel, spiritual things, the river of life. And as we see in Revelation chapter 5 and in other passages, seas are often used as metaphors for ominousness or wicked or bad, the beast of the sea, the world of nations that are under the curse of sin and its consequences, that God is gathering out a people from the multitude of the sea, all kinds of fish. He's bringing these people into profession of faith in Christ. Then we see here in our text the sorting that begins to take place. It points us to the fact that there is a day. The sorting begins to take place as at the end of the age. First, we see in verse 48 that when it was full and they drew that net to shore, that these men sat down. In other words, it speaks of process, it speaks of diligence. They sit down to go about their task, and they begin to gather the good fish that were edible, that were sellable, for the sake of the parable, into vessels to be taken to the market, categorized. I was reading that there were over 20 different species of fish, uh, more than that, 22 or more in the Sea of Galilee, and not all of them were edible or sellable. And so these men begin to go through their process of sorting the, the fish that they want to take. And the only aspect of this parable that Jesus explains for us is the sorting aspect. The sorting is what Jesus wants us to walk away with here this morning. And notice verse 50, he simply says this, or verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and separate, sort, the wicked from among the just. That will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the sorting. In this parable, the men who did not want certain fish would simply cast them back. But in Jesus' explanation of the parable, it speaks of a certain judgment, which is hell. Separation, in one sense, separation from God. Not heaven, the opposite of heaven. Eternal, unrelenting punishment in hell. It points us to the close of the age. That there is coming a day to where not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, as Jesus has already picked up on this language, not all those who have made a profession, but those who have no possession of Christ, it will be revealed. You can imagine as Jesus is teaching that, there's a disciple sitting right there front and center. 
Judas, who will betray him, who has made a profession, but there is, is no possession. So this sorting work, this judgment work, is what is the focus of the parable. It's what we will walk away with today. In fact, I want us to look for our final purposes this morning at just four key, fa- four key facts of God's judgment as we look here into the text. In fact, the word judgment in Hebrew refers chiefly to the work of a judge or a, a lawgiver. The word is to discriminate or to make distinctions. In Greek, it literally means to divide. And this is how Jesus describes the coming judgment for all men. So listen to me very carefully. Oftentimes, men will love to celebrate the fact that God is the God of intelligent design. He has designed the beginning, but to the neglect of the intelligent design of the ending as well. So friends, we're going to look at this, just four things this text tells us about the coming judgment for the lost, and then we're going to close with looking to Christ and the good news of the gospel. Number one, I want us to see this. As we look into this text, we find that God's judgment is thorough. God's judgment is thorough. For ways and purposes that are beyond what we understand, I think we can understand it in this way, that there are people who profess faith in Christ, but they are wolves among us. There are those that we grow up with in, among the sons of this world, the sons of Satan, even within the church. There's an emphasis here. There is a separation. And those that will be separated are those that do not have the new birth, the new heart, that do not walk in the newness of life. The time for being mixed in together will be completely over. Each man will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will simply be found to be in the book of life or not in the book of life. There is no coming in with your parents in this judgment. There is no sliding in with your friends in in the back door. There is no type of diversion. One thing we see about this sorting, this judgment, is that it it is thorough. Secondly, we see that it is determined. The second fact about God's judgment here in this text is that there is a time that is known only to God where this judgment is fixed. As I mentioned just a moment ago, we know that there are lesser deadlines that simply point to, in one sense, I'm not trying to demonize the IRS or talk about our mortgage payments or our bill payments or any of those things, but we understand this, reg- this regulatory aspect of deadlines and appointments and key meetings. Sometimes if someone sent us a text, they say, I would like to meet with you in our, for whatever, in our weakness and our frailness, we can turn that into all kinds of uh, bad things. And when really that, that meeting is not a bad thing, they just want to talk. But sometimes we can think, I've got to come have a meeting with someone would cause some of you to have great anxiety and fear. But I just want to remind us that this judgment is a determined judgment. And all of the lost who are making a profession or an outright rejection of saying, I know what I'm doing, I reject the gospel, I will be the author of my fate, I will choose my destiny, I will celebrate my life however I want to celebrate my life. No man can judge me, only God can judge me. They're absolutely right in that regard. There is a determined judgment where it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. 
Friends, I want to ask you a question this morning. If this judgment is determined, if it is on God's calendar, we don't know when it is, but He knows when it is. It is a certain fixed date, but if that date were to be today, what is the status of your soul? In what camp are you? Are you found in Christ? Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a disciple of the kingdom? Have you turned from your sins and placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone? Or do you continue in your own way? You are your own God. No one can tell you what to do. You don't give a rip about God. You don't live for God. You don't love God. You don't love Christ. You know how to put up a good act. You know how to go through the motions. You know how to talk a certain way. You know how to act a certain way. You know how to fool people. Friends, what we need to know is that there's a determined date in the future where all of that is gone. In fact, we'll see in just a moment that the agents of this judgment are, for the second time invoked here in so many verses, are the angels, the angels of God. So much that we could say about the angels, but one thing we'll say for sure is that the angels will have the discernment, the power, and the ability by God to do this sorting work. They will have a delegated authority and power that is given by God to take and separate and to do this, this judgment. Thirdly, we see that it is not only determined, but we see that it is permanent. We see that it is permanent. And I think in all of our meditating on judgment, the lost, the doctrine of hell, I think number three is the worst. What you've got to understand about heaven, the joy of the gospel, is that heaven is wonderfully permanent. What you also need to understand if you reject Christ is that hell is horribly permanent. There is no end. Friend, it, it, this, is, this is the most loving news that I could tell you this morning is that, is that for those of you who dismiss the doctrine of hell, for those of you that just think it should go away or if you don't think about it, it will it not exist. For those of you who are not served well and that people do not love you well in confronting you in your sin or parenting you in your sin, that there are punishments and consequences, they let you just continue on in the path that you are on. I just want you to know there's coming a day where all of that ends. All of that ends, and you will be condemned to live in hell forever and ever and ever. In the same way that the righteous will shine as lights, as we've seen in the previous parable, at the end of the age, verse 40, uh, excuse me, well, anyway, I've lost my, my verse there, but they will shine and reign on high with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. They will have a glorified body the lost, the eternally damned, will have a, a glorified body, but for punishment. Understand what that means. Unrelenting pain, unrelenting separation, unrelenting fire. We'll see some descriptions of what the doctrine of hell truly is. But one of the things you need to understand is that it is a body that is capable of experiencing it. And then number four, the end of the age, the end of the wicked, will be absolutely dreadful. This is the point of this parable, the dragnet. This is the conclusion of Jesus's sermon. The final point of Jesus's parable is that the terrible fate of those who have not trusted and followed after Christ is absolutely dreadful. In fact, I want us to take just for a moment to 
put some of these descriptions of hell together as Jesus has given them to us. This is not exhaustive. We will not be looking at all of them within the Gospel of Matthew. But take just for a moment to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. And I, I want us to flip how we understand who God is and how we understand so many of these spiritual things is that God reveals himself to us through anthropomorphic terms so that we can understand in the flesh and a sense of who he is and what he will do. And in the same way that he reveals to us who he is in anthropomorphic times, he teaches us about the doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of hell in ways that, God, that, that people can understand them. They can hear and have an, a sense of understanding of what it is. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, he says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and they will come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here in this description of verse 12 of Matthew 8, we see that it is a place of eternal outer darkness. Not only is it a place of outer darkness, but it is a place of weeping. And again, we see this theme of a gnashing of teeth, which would indicate horrendous pain. And this has also been expressed to us in Matthew 13 as well, the gnashing of teeth. Now turn with me over to Matthew 22, verse 13. As you're turning there, Matthew 22, verse 13, Jesus has already told his disciples in Matthew 10 that there is a fear that they should have as they serve him, as they preach the gospel of the kingdom. And the fear that they should have should not be kings and rulers and imprisonments and torture to the body. It should be in the God who has power over both body and soul. As we look at this judgment, we have to understand this doesn't just affect the body, it affects the soul. Matthew twenty-two thirteen. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, again, we see there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to ask that you turn over to Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read two other verses of Scripture as you make your way there. Mark 9, 42. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. What Matthew 5, 41 tells us is that this is an eternal fire where the flame never ceases. Now, Mark 9, 42, notice these teachings of Jesus that are given to us. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone that was hung about his neck that he had been cast into the sea. If your hand, verse 43, causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. The point is not hands or eyes or more, uh, mutilating the body. The point is simply this. Abandon your sin. There is no sin worth going to hell over. That's the point. Verse 44 tells us, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame 
than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, verse 47, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. One final verse I'm going to ask that you turn with me to is Luke 16, verse 24. Luke 16, verse 24. As you're turning there, here's the key. Listen, run to Jesus. Look to Jesus. There is no lust, no thieving, no lying, no sin worth keeping, no fornication worth continuing, There is no sin, blasphemy, worth repeating. There is no sins that we could list or come up with that are worth holding on to for hell. Listen, friends, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear the word of Jesus that hell is forever. Hell is an unbelievable place of agony and fire and darkness and separation from all that is good in Christ. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards, early American theologian, that simply said this, every bit of pain in this life that I experience in the body is simply but a pointer to the agonies of hell. That is helpful as we make that comparison. Some of you would say, oh, I've had a certain pain. I was cut with a saw and I lost a finger or That pain was unbearable, and no doubt it was. Or you could talk about injuries that you've experienced, and the way that you would describe it would be unbelievable pain to some of you have experienced pain to a degree to where you just passed out. Your your faculties, your system shut down, and adrenaline shut in, and you just lost your, your consciousness. But friends, not only is this pain greater and more eternal, but you'll never lose your consciousness. Luke 16 verse 24 says this, This is the parable of the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Notice with me just what we can deduce here from verse 16. I'm looking at other passages of Scripture and not trying to necessarily preach them. But notice what verse 16 tells us. There is cognitive Conversation, remembrance happening here in verse 16, verse 24 of chapter 16. There is crying out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. There's the remembering of things in the past. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. There's agony over the flame. There's so many things that we see here, but one thing we learn from these cross-references about what hell is not. Listen, friends, it's not paradise. It's not a party. It's not the the highway to hell that ACDC makes you think it is. It's not all the descriptions that the lost and the blasphemers and the rebellious would say, listen, I'm I'm abandoning authority. I'm abandoning uh, anything that would hinder me. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to party with my friends, not only in in this life, but I'm going to party with them in hell forever. Well, not according to Jesus, you're not. And not according to Scripture, You're not. And I don't say that to be cute or or to be snarky or to be fantastic. Friends, as we go back to Matthew chapter 13, we look at Jesus' final question. But friends, I I say this just to 
combat a little bit of what we often hear about, about hell. The mimicking of hell, the juvenilizing of hell, the mimicries of hell, just like belittling of hell through modern culture, movies, music, as if it's, as if it's something to be glorious. You look at modern uh, artists, and I'm not going to begin to list them or their songs, their lyrics, and I don't want to give them the time of day, but friends, it's obvious that the lost are blind to the reality of hell. And may God, by His grace, help us not to be. Here we see a final question in this parable of the dragnet in verse 51, where Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them a simple question. And this is, I almost find it humorous. He says, Jesus said to them, have you understood, notice here, all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. The disciples are far more confident than than many pastors and theologians in the church even today. Just think about what all they've just heard. Think about all they've just inculcated, all they've just assumed Jesus asked them a question, do you understand these things? And they say, yes. Well, at times, many have found the parables to be difficult to navigate and confusing, and I'm glad that they have more confidence than some of us have. I'm not mocking them at all. We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, would you grant insight? Would you grant light? Would you help us to understand these things? And this morning, I would ask you, do you understand these things? In the same way Jesus, in verse 51, simply says, to, to the disciples, have you understood these things? I would say to you this morning, have you understood these things? Do you understand that there is a coming judgment? Do you understand that there is a God in heaven? There is a God in heaven who by specific design created a world, designed this world. He is sovereign over this world. And not only was he sovereign in the beginning of it, And not only was he sovereign in the inventing of salvation's plan to redeem a world back to himself, listen, he is sovereign in the ending of this world. He's just as sovereign about how it ends as he is in the beginning. He's just as sovereign in the end as he is in redeeming his people from their sin. And there is coming a day where he says, it's time. All things are now ready. Go and get my children. Blow the trumpet. And we are called up together. We find ourselves in his presence. And the end of the age begins. Friends, there is an end of the age. And you say, well, when is the end of the age? Well, that I don't know. But there is an end of the age. And when that end of the age comes, when the net, when the dragnet is fully brought to shore, It's done. The gospel is done. Salvation is done. If you are lost and found outside of Christ, there is no hope for you. The gospel is no longer in effect. When we think about the end of the age, when we think about being in the presence of Christ, there are two things that we will not do in heaven. One is sin, praise the Lord. And the other is evangelize. The gospel has a shelf life. And so it's this morning as I close, I want you to know, hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That our thrice holy God sent his one and only son to come to this earth to keep the law perfectly. To live a life without sin, which is what we absolutely cannot do. We actually try hard at times to to be good and be moral and no longer sin. And we just find that the harder we try, the worse it is. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ 
came so that he would save his people from their sins. He went to the cross for our sins. He received the judgment in his body and his person that was due to me and to you. The wrath of God was poured out upon his son. He received that. Friends, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he rose three days later in resurrected body, displaying power and victory over death, hell, and the grave. He ascended back to the Father, and friends, this very day, and until the Lord determines the end of the age, hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And friends, when it is fully and finally here, if you've not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be too late. Too late. Many of you are rehearsing as you think about this gospel message today that you heard it. You might have heard it for the 50th time or it might have been for the first time. But you'll never forget the day that you fully understood that you were a sinner. This morning in Sunday school, I was telling the story of my dad. It had practical purpose and application, but I was saying simply this. He was 15 years old. He'd only ever been celebrated. He'd only ever been told, you are a good boy. You are just great. He'd only ever been praised and lauded. He was in church every time the doors were open. The only problem was this. He'd never heard that he was a sinner, and he was lost and on his way to hell. He heard a preacher preach a gospel message that did not assume his goodness, that showed him his wickedness and his sin, how he violated God's law. For the first time in his life, he truly began to just feel the weight of his sin and realize none of these things save me. Going to church doesn't save me. Growing up in a godly home doesn't save me. Reading my Bible doesn't save me. Being a leader in my youth group doesn't save me. Being told I'm a good boy doesn't save me because I'm not good. I need Christ. For some of you, you've never heard that either. You've only ever been told you're good. I'm not mocking having a loving home. I'm not, I'm not disdaining any of the nurturing and loving and all this. But listen, true love is the revelation of truth. And true love tells us the truth. And friends, the truth is this, and it will set you free. You are not good. You are very, very bad. And you must be saved. You must be born again. I, I don't care who your parents are. I, I don't care uh, any detail about your life. I just want you to know this. You need Jesus. And I need Jesus. We must be saved. And I pray that if you're here this morning, this is not a fun message to preach, I'll just tell you that. But it's truth. It's right out of the mouth of Jesus. It's the parable of the dragnet. As we've seen this morning, it is a certain judgment that is coming for the lost. Well, the good news is this morning, look to Jesus. Come to Jesus, as we sang just a moment ago. Run to Christ and rest in Him. Just in the same way that Mo Moses, that Noah preached the gospel and Noah preached the coming judgment of God. There came a day where the door was shut. And when that door was shut, the floodwaters of God's wrath were poured out. Friends, this is that day. This is the day of preaching. This is what I'm doing right now, saying look to Jesus, run to Jesus, rest in Jesus. But that door, friends, is shutting more and more and more. And when it is shut, it's done. It's over. For you, that door may be, may be death or maybe the return of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take 
this feeble message and that you will apply it by your spirit, that you will awaken the lost about the certain judgment that awaits those who are outside of Christ, who reject Christ, who reject truth. Father, we live in an age where there's only affirmation. I am the king of my life. Whatever I want to be, I will be. Whatever I say I am, I will be that. It's hard to find anyone who loves us enough to confront us, to cross-grain us, to love us enough to tell us the truth. But Lord, that's what you did. You gave us the truth. You are the truth. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Father, this morning I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would do that regenerating work in the lives of the lost. I pray that you will call the lost to yourself. Father, those of us who are in Christ, we give you all the praise and glory for our salvation. We have nothing to boast in, nothing to exalt in apart from Christ. And what a delight it is to glory in Christ, our Savior. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing, Lord have mercy for one.